Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-393. Today's show is about resilience. That's the theme. And it's more than just stubbornness or courage or grit, which is the popular term nowadays. It's about all those things and more. As endurance athletes and runners, we have a front row seat to the practice of resilience across the arc of our lives and in our community. So today we talk with Gary, who I met at the Burning River 100. He was selling copies of his book, The Tao of Running. I took his card and we connected this past week to chat about how to practice this courage and enjoy it in our training and our racing. And in section one, I'll talk about resilience in our running. You can tell by now that I've been thinking about this a lot. Resilience is one of the keys to to living a successful life, right? And also to, to overcoming some of the challenges you get in life. And in section two, I'll talk about an example of how to use resilience at work. I am running the Wapak Trail 18 miler this weekend, and I'm looking forward to it. I think I can carry the fitness that I have built up this summer into this race and do well. It's a funny thing when you look at an 18-mile technical mountain race as an easy race, right? That's either a good thing or a bad thing. Other than that, I've been training away, trying to get some speed back. Not that I ever had any real speed, but it's all relative. I did register for my 21st Boston Marathon this week. I used my 2017 Bay State Marathon time from last year of 3.33.33, which would probably get me in under the cutoff anyhow. I'm guessing the cutoff is going to creep again this year and move closer to five minutes under the standard. But since I have 10 plus years in, I get to register early and cut the line, so to speak. But technically... By registering early and cutting the line, I could get in with a 339.59. <laughs> so that is either a good thing or a bad thing. I can't believe summer is almost over. I hope yours has been splendid. Mine's been pretty good. 
I got to ride my motorcycle more than I have in years. I have a nice route, a nice back road route that I take to work and back. It's about eh, 11, 12 miles. And sometimes I think that maybe I'm too old and an old guy like me should not be riding a motorcycle so much. You know, my reaction times probably aren't what they used to be. My eyes certainly aren't. <laughs> and uh, getting into an accident with a car on a motorcycle, you know, typically doesn't end well for the motorcycle. You know, I'm basically a giant engine with a gas tank strapped to it, traveling at high velocity. So as anyone who rides a motorcycle knows, the first thing people do when they learn that you ride is tell you their worst motorcycle story. They've been saving up for this occasion. It's always about that friend who got obliterated on the highway by a distracted driver. Uh, so here's a tip for all of you who don't ride motorcycles. That's not the least bit helpful. Don't do that. So on these back roads, I've got different challenges than on the highway. On a typical ride to or from work, I'll have one or two people try to kill me. <laughs> um, you know, but I'm pretty good at seeing it coming, so I avoid these inelastic interactions with the other commuters. And as a bonus, I get to shake my head at them and give them that what the blank body language. Uh, mostly it's just people pulling out. They don't see bikes. There's also a fair amount of running stop signs and uh, not using turn signals. You can scan the landscape ahead of you and you watch the oncoming traffic and you can read sort of the body language of the cars. You get really good at predictive analytics. You see a situation developing and you just make sure you're not there when they do that stupid thing. It's a bit like a video game. And one thing I'm seeing more of this year is people crossing the lines. And I, and I know in Asia and certain metropolitan areas, these lane lines are optional. But where I live, you're supposed to stay on your side of the line, on your side of the road. And I don't know why you need to drive on my side of the road, too. Uh, I see this behavior as a, as a biker, uh, a, you know, a road biker, not a motorcyclist. A, a bicyclist, and I see it as a runner as well, and it's it uh, scares the hell out of me. It's probably distractive driving, people drifting all over the road. So, so my friends, look twice, save a life. Motorcycles are everywhere, and relax. There's no need to run that stop sign. Tighten it up a bit. Keep on your own side of the road. We appreciate the effort. Spread the love. And you know what? I'm going to keep riding my motorcycle and my bike. <laughs> I always figured that's how I'd meet my maker anyhow, being distracted by a pretty girl on the sidewalk and burying myself in the back of a stopped truck. But you know, I'm resilient. Are you on with the show? It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Resilience. What is resilience? What is mowage? What is resilience? How do you get it into your life? How do you weave it into your running? Into your athletic pursuits? If you're listening to this, chances are you are, have been, or have aspirations to be an endurance athlete. 
And maybe you want to achieve some goals. Maybe you want to run a marathon in a personal best time. Maybe you want to qualify for Boston. Maybe you're considering a 100-mile race or something equally epic. Or maybe you're searching for ways to work that fitness adventure into your life, to find that balance that allows you to consistently perform, to not be hit and miss, to have a purring motor of a life that interweaves seamlessly around your work, your family, your community, your training, and all the other substantial things that swirl in the lives of average people. And maybe you're trying to deal with change, to bounce back, to find again what is temporarily lost. Maybe you're looking to grow, to try something new. Maybe it's all these things at once. Whatever it is, it requires resilience. Whether it's closing that 26th mile at race pace or dredging up the energy to change one more diaper, (laughs) you need to find and practice resilience. And there's been a lot of writing recently on resilience. Analytical people want to know what makes one person successful and another one not. What makes one person quit or another person persevere? And they study what are those attributes that determine whether or not you quit or you don't. It's an interesting mix of influences. There are environmental factors, where and how you grew up, where you live, the community you associate with. All these things influence but don't determine your resilience or your outcomes. In our training, this environmental influences things like the weather on race day, the course, the difficulty of our training, and the support, or lack thereof, of our training community. These are environmental, or outside-in influences. But the stronger influencers in those outcomes are internal. They're within us. They are created in our thinking mind and burned into our autonomous nervous system as habit. And these are the strong bonds of resilience in your practice. All these things come together at that moment when you're staring at the track about to start that speed work. That decision to do the work, that is the culmination of resilience. People call it or talk about grit a lot these days. And that grit, that term grit comes from, think about it, the act of gritting your teeth, right? Literally clenching your teeth together to find your resolve. But how do, how do you practice grit? And Angela Duckworth's famous book on this, she set the rules. She said four rules. Uh, the first one was commitment. And commitment means you promise to do it. You set a goal and do whatever it takes to deliver. The second one was control. And that means you believe, you really believe that you can do it. And you will keep your emotions in check when doing it. And the third one is challenge, which is you are driven to do it and you will take chances and acceptable risk and you will see setbacks and take those setbacks to make you stronger. And the fourth and final one is confidence, which is you believe that you have the ability to do it and you will stand your ground if you need to. 
And these are all internal commitments to resilience or to grit. And we can see right away examples, like in the ultra-running world, that the commitment to finish is incredibly important. Deciding to do it, then committing to it, holds a lot of force in our minds. There's a lot of power to that. Are you committed? If you're not committed to the goal, you'll walk off the track when it gets hard. You will stop when it hurts. You will give up when it gets hard. Do you really believe that you can do it? If you have doubts, they'll creep in when you're at your weakest spot. You have to believe you can do it. If you believe, then things will line up to support that belief. If you don't believe, then excuses will arrive to support your doubt. And challenges are perhaps the biggest test of our resilience. How do we handle failure? How do we manage that bad workout, that bad race, that bad injury? Does it knock down our belief? Or does it teach us something and make us stronger? That's where I am in my practice. That's what I'm trying to figure out. We are all going to fail. Small failures every day. Big failures every so often, episodically. And it's not the first failure. It's not the first one that gets you. It's the fourth or the fifth or the 20th time that you get whacked with failure. That's the test of your resilience. And those are the challenges that are the moments of truth. And that's what you train your practice for. And when we first start a new adventure, we first start that training, we begin to formulate how we're going to achieve that new goal in our conscious mind. We might read the articles about it. We might talk to people who have done it before or listen to all the podcasts on the topic. And this is the conscious research phase that helps us reinforce our decision and our belief and our commitment. Learning becomes part of the doing, becomes a precursor of the doing. And as we begin to train for that goal, we shift some of that conscious thought into autonomous habit. We execute the training every day that puts us one step closer. We burn in the habits that make the practice stick. And we hit rough patches and bumps, but with our belief and our commitment, we change and adapt and move forward. And this brings us to the work. We do the necessary work to achieve that goal. As much as we'd like to find a shortcut (laughs) to that goal, we know that the most direct path is through the work. And thus, we define our practice. And this is how we become present in our practice. We have built the foundation of commitment and belief. Now we settle into the practice of the work. It becomes part of our lives. And this act of finding a goal, committing to it, believing in it, learning how to accomplish it, and then dropping into the rhythm of the work, these are the bricks in the pathways that build up a life of accomplishment. But within these pathways, within the herringbone pattern of the seasons of training and adventure, of work and family, there are hundreds of moments of resilience, 
hundreds of times where we could choose to stay in bed, hundreds of times where we could choose to stop. And resilience is what keeps us on the path. We don't make all those decisions the way we'd like, but we focus on making enough of them that we push the table to our benefit. We push the entropy that surrounds us away and clear a spot of our own in our own practice. This is the resilience in the small moments of truth. The discomfort of a workout is strength being built one footstep at a time. Resilience plays its hand in the long game as well. The devastating disease, the full-stop injury, the constant grinding advance of age. Resilience is knowing that there is next year and the year after that. And as many years that we can be gifted, today may not be a day we can practice and do the work, but today is still a day that we can hold our boat steady in the current and continue forward towards our larger lifetime goals. Injuries and life events are opportunities to gain strength and opportunities to learn. That's how to practice resilience over the long run. And there are practical steps that Gary calls out in the Tao of running and that I have found to be true in my life, in my practice, to win those small moments of resilience. First is making that decision. You will finish. You will attempt every workout that coach gives you. Second is bringing a confidence and positivity to the endeavor that reflects your belief that it is the right thing, that it is a purposeful thing, that there is a reason you are doing this. Third is to reinforce these things in your practice, maybe with a mantra, maybe with affirmations, which is frankly another form of mantra, or other ways to remind you of your practice, of your purpose, of your commitment, and your belief. And fourth is to embrace that hardship, embrace that work, the effort, the discomfort, the soreness. That's a reason to rejoice, because it is proof that you are well on your chosen path. And fifth is to look for the big setbacks, the big failures, the big challenges, to expect them, to be ready for them, and to welcome them as learning. And resilience in your practice will become doing. That one more step, that one more mile, that one more hill, that one life lived well. And now for today's featured interview. Gary. Yes, I'm here. So why don't you give us the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do and why we're talking here, my friend. Well, I'm an ultra runner and a writer, and I wrote a book called The Tao of Running, which is all about the mental side of running ultras and, and just running in general. I'm 65 years old. I have been running for about 30, 35 years, and um, about half that time has been Ultra, ultra run, done 6,500 mile races, and uh, I just like to help people understand the, the deeper side of running. And 
I went through your book, The Tao of Running. See, I pronounced it correctly. And uh, I was impressed because you verbalized a lot of the things that I really believe in about running, right? So for me, and it's different for different people, but for me, like for you, a lot of it is mental, right? And what I get out of it is the reward for me is a lot of the mental stuff that you talk about. And that really gets amplified as you move up in distance, right? So the longer, yes, it does. for me, anyhow, maybe not the intensity, but the arc of the mental aspect of running gets more interesting as you move up in distance. It's very interesting. It's, and it's very difficult to explain. And you really only understand it, I think, by experiencing it, right? So I think you did a good job in verbalizing that for those people who may be on their own journey, but have yet to experience some of this stuff, explaining to them what's going to happen. Yeah, I agree that uh, it gets more and more obvious to you just how important the mental side of running is as you um, challenge longer distances and, and get deeper into the pain cave. But I'm also mindful of the fact that the mental side of running is, is always operating, even for a daily five-mile run. You can be paying attention to what's going on in your mind, and it, it adds a lot of interest to what you're doing, even if you're not pushing the outer limits of your um, pain that you can get into when you're running. Right. And it's interesting to me because I try to explain this to people in the context of training for a marathon. And one of the things I do is I run Boston and run Boston, you have to qualify. And to qualify, you have to work pretty hard, right? And a lot of that work requires some fairly intense workouts, some speed work and that sort of thing. And as a result of that, there's a lot of discomfort, we would say, in some of these workouts, right? Yes, sir. And I tried to tell people that it's that you can't make the pain go away. There's no strategy or technique to make the pain go away. That's not what the purpose is. The purpose is to accept the pain, right? And to embrace the pain. And what I like to say is you relax into the pain, right? So to be able to run relaxed while you're in a significant amount of discomfort, that's really one of the magic things that you discover as you amp up your running. And I try to explain that to people. And I think that was what struck me right off the bat in your book is talking through that process, right, of accepting the pain and sort of becoming friends with the pain, right? Yeah, I think dealing with the pain is probably the major issue in the book. And um, there's a lot of ways to do it. And as you said, the number one issue there is coming to grips with it, facing up to it. And once you're able to face up to it, then it, it takes some of the sting out of it. It takes some of the power away from the pain once you're able to uh, accept it. Right, to sort of face the monster. Exactly. And in our modern world, we are in a position where a lot of the discomfort has been removed from our lives. So this concept of actually sort of seeking out the hard places and the hard things is novel to a lot of people, right? They just don't haven't had this sort of discomfort before. Yeah, that's a very interesting part of the whole process is uh, especially also running is why you would seek out that thing, why you would go to those places that are so difficult. But then overcoming those difficulties and winning through to the finish, that becomes one of the most rewarding parts of your life. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that your body and your mind, and you say this, right, and I always say this as well, is that your body is capable of so much more than you give it credit for. You just never mm -hmm. press it that hard so you don't know. So it is 90% mental. If you bring that 
positive attitude into the race or sustain it during the race or the training, you're going to be much more successful than if you go in. The guys you know are going to drop in those long races are the ones that go in sort of half-heartedly, right? Yes. You have to be um, mentally prepared to run the really long distances. And there's a, a certain level of physical ability that you've got to develop. But once you're there, then it really becomes a matter of uh, are you going to be able to summon the determination that it takes at the end? Because everybody is going to feel very bad in like a 100-mile race and want to quit. And the people who can summon the determination and get beyond their bodies telling them to quit are the ones who will uh, get to the finish. Yeah, but do you think a lot of that is what you've decided to do going in, right? Because you know, especially if you've done it a couple of times, you know you're going to get those low lows and you just make a deal that you're not going to quit, right? Yeah, I wonder though how much you can do ahead of time. You never really know how you're going to react until you actually get to that place where you are feeling extremely bad and you're feeling like you want to quit and uh, your thinking goes in entirely negative. At the beginning of the race, everybody's telling themselves, well, I'm not going to quit. I'm just going to keep going no matter what. But I think it takes some practice and some technique to actually be able to use those methods to stay mentally strong when you get to that point where you really feel badly. So what are, I think those, uh, so what are some of those uh, tactical things? Well, the four things that I tend to rely on most heavily, I've got a new book that's coming out in November. It's called The Mindful Runner, and uh, picking up on a lot of the themes that I started in the Tao of running. But in the new book, I call these techniques the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they're four techniques that you sort of can trot out when you get to that point in the race when things are going extremely badly. And the first one is mindfulness. And I know in the Tao of running, I go through how mindfulness is particularly well-suited for running and particularly well-suited for being able to deal with the painful aspects of running. And then mantras, which is uh, having a ready set phrase in your mind that you can pull out and repeat to yourself when you get to the point where you can feel your resolve slipping away and, and you're going into a negative self-talk in your mind. You want to try to keep things positive and you can do that by repeating a mantra to yourself that is particularly meaningful for you and it sort of blocks out the negative thinking. And then the third horseman is uh, music. And I can use music to sink down into the music and live the emotional experience of a song and, and the words to sort of get myself out of the negative thinking to the end of a race. And then the fourth horseman is determination. And determination for me is the most important quality that you can bring to uh, a situation where, you, you know, you're not going to make it or you feel so bad you want to slow down or quit. Determination just sort of cuts through all the logical thinking that you're doing. You're thinking, oh, I don't have enough time or at this pace, I'm, I'm never going to make it or there I'm feeling so much pain here and there that I have to drop out. Determination sort of cuts through all those logical arguments that your mind is creating for you, and you go to more of an, an illogical, emotional place in your mind, and you just say, 
I'm going to keep trying no matter what the consequence. So those right. Are- yeah. You basically say, I don't care. I'm going to keep running. Your mind spins up all these excuses logically, but you get psychosomatic stuff from your body that tries to back up what the mind is telling you as well. So it's, it's good to just clear exactly, the buffer yes. and say, don't care. Don't care. Because I'll get that in training sometimes where my I'll be deep in the pain locker and my body will say something like, oh, I might throw up if you keep going. And I just say, okay, go ahead. And then it goes exactly. away. Exactly. Right? And I think it's worthwhile sort of seeking out those moments when you are training. Because like I said, that in a race, it's hard to know how you're going to react if you're never pushing yourself hard, hard enough to really feel those deeply bad feelings. But when you're training or you're doing a long run and things start going south and you don't feel well and you're tired and you're thinking, oh, this isn't such a great day, maybe I'll back off and train harder next weekend. That's the moment when you can really practice these mental techniques to keep yourself going. When you feel like quitting or slowing down, speed up, confound what your mind is telling you and work harder at staying in the race. They're staying in the workout and staying positive. I like to tell myself that I never drop out of a workout because it's those difficult workouts that are really giving you the opportunity to train your mind to stay tough and and stay positive. And that's going to be invaluable when you get in the race and you're invariably going to get to a point where you want to slow down or quit. Right. So you're training your mental muscles as well as your uh, physical muscles. And that's such a big part of it, right? Yes, it really, it really is. And, and I think most people, they go, they, they go work, they do their workout or they do their long run and they're not paying much attention to that side of the, the mental side. Right. They're, they're paying attention to how they feel physically and at what their pace is and how far they're running and that how hot it is that sort of thing. They're not monitoring how is my mind reacting to what I'm doing here. And if it's reacting negatively, what are my possibilities for getting myself out of that mindset and into a more positive mindset? One thing I learned from um, Joanne Dolcoder, she's a sports psychologist and um, uh, she has a book about the mental side of running called Your Performing Edge. And she said, when things really start hurting, most people, their first reaction is, is I have a problem here. Something is going wrong. I shouldn't be feeling like this. I must not have trained hard enough. Now I'm going to have to back off. I might have to drop out. But when actually you're feeling badly and um, feeling tired or exhausted, that's exactly the way you should be feeling. If you're running a 50-mile race and you're at 40 miles and and you're desperately tired and things are hurting, you should be feeling that way. That's evidence that you are doing your very best, that you are pushing yourself as hard as you can push yourself, that you're out there capable of getting to that point where you feel that badly. And so you can actually make it a positive thing. This is how I'm supposed to be feeling. This is how everybody else is probably feeling. And if I can accept the way I'm feeling and treat it as some as positive feedback instead of negative feedback, then get your yourself back on track and get focused back on continuing. And right. That's, and that, one of the things that perspective so, is just 
has been so valuable to me over the years. So the worse you feel, the more you feel like, well, this, this is the natural way to feel when you're running hard. Right. Yeah. So that's a good example. I use that. You reminded me of that. I use that as well. This week, I've been trying to get some speed back from the ultra I ran. So I've been doing a lot of speed work and it's just awful because my legs haven't done that in five months, right? right. It's just been awful. And so you reminded me and what I, my self-talk now is when it feels awful is I'm getting stronger and I'm getting faster. That's what that feeling is. That's the feeling of me getting stronger and faster. Right. So that's, that's an exactly example right. of that. That's and in exactly your example, right. when you're when you hit that point in the race where it starts to suck, you can change your self-talk to be this is the good stuff. Right. I did all that work to get here. This is the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> My friend and I used to call it the essence of running. When you you get to that point where it just feels so badly that uh, the only thing you want to do is contemplate is quitting. You're really getting into the essence of it. But that's the point because people have th this imagination where they imagine that uh, if they just train hard enough, then, then they're going to feel great all the way through a race. And uh, that never happens unless you're slowing down and you're um, just trying to enjoy yourself, not run a, a fast time. Then you can maybe get through an entire race without feeling too badly. But if you're pushing yourself and you're finding your limit, then you're right. It's not going to feel good. It's going to suck. Right. In fact, the, 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 other, the, first, the first chapter of my new book is uh, the title is Running Sucks. Yeah, embracing the suck. One other technique that I use a lot, especially in this really long stuff, is to just shrink the time frame, right? Because if you start thinking about six miles from now or 10 miles from now or 40 miles from now, it's too big a chunk for your brain. You got to say, what am I doing right now? Is my form clean? Is this next step going to be a good, relaxed step, right? And I, I don't care whether you're in a, a workout or in a 100-mile race. You got to shorten that 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 scope for your brain to be able to wrap, you know, give it something it can work with, right? Yes. And mindfulness is um, an excellent technique for staying in that mindset because mindfulness is uh, focusing your attention on the present with acceptance. That's the, the short definition of mindfulness. And when you're focusing your attention on the present, you're paying attention to, to how you feel at that moment, to your breathing, to the motion of your body, you're taking in what's all around you, you're feeling the air on your skin, you're trying to think down into the present moment and thoughts about what's going to happen to me in five miles or 10 miles, those thoughts you want to just, okay, they're, you, they're there, you accept them and then you move beyond them or thinking about how far is left to go in the race. That's not the present, that's the future try to stay in the present and not worry about, well, it's specifically not attaching worry to your thought. That's the acceptance part of mindfulness. So you want to stay right. in the present. And, and One of the other themes running through your writing here is that those longer, more difficult races, these things that we do to challenge ourselves, one of the reasons we do them is because it strips away a lot of it simplifies everything, right? It strips away everything until you're left bare out there with just you and the pain. At some point, you almost lose yourself and become part of the bigger world, right? Philosophically. Yeah. And um, that that's a big topic. I'd like people to read the book to really 
understand the nuances of, of all that. But um, yeah, that's something that's so rewarding about running is that um, it's a chance to really get to know yourself, to know what your limits are, to experience a part of life that you rarely get to experience, pushing yourself to the limit and, and seeing how you react and, and then winning through to the, to the finish is so incredibly rewarding. You mentioned that you do a lot of training or you train people for marathons. And it's just so telling that marathoning has become such a big thing. So many tens of thousands of people all over the world wanting to finish a marathon. When 30 years ago, marathons, people thought that it was just for the crazy fringe runners. And, and it was like impossible for the normal person to run a marathon. Well, now everybody's doing it because taking on something big like that, training for it, running the race, getting through those last six miles, getting to the finish line, it's such a an enormous bucket list type goal to fulfill in your life. And running is giving you that, giving you something that you otherwise wouldn't experience. Yeah. And I'll let you go with this thought that you and I, you know, we talk about this stuff, but we learn this, right? And the way we learn this was through practice. And so our running is a lifelong thing and it's a practice that we do. And as we engage in that practice, we learn these things, right? So nobody's going to come out of the gate. There's no book you can read that can tell you this stuff. It's by running. It's by being out in the world and following this practice, right? The best we can do is give guidance. Yes. But I don't want to leave people with the impression that running is all about running hard and getting into the pain cave and dealing with that. We talk a lot about that because that's such a dramatic part of what we're doing, especially when you're ultra running. And it's very rewarding to visit those really bad places and then win through to the finish. But running is it's a community of people that are out there making friends, getting to know each other. Running, just day-to-day running, it gets you out of your office and gets you outside and exercising. It's a very positive thing to uh, do with your time. You're getting something out of it. You're feeling a lot of pride in what you're doing. And it's a great way to spend time that might be spent doing things that are less uh, positive in your life. And I've gotten to the point where I'm old enough that I really just enjoy being in the race. I'm not necessarily trying to run a fast time or anything. And um, once you can go to a race and just relax and enjoy the whole experience, that's very rewarding as well. Indeed. Yep. And uh, I guess one of the things that I've learned is that it's fun to go to the edge sometimes to learn some things, but it's a lifetime practice. So you want to do it at a level that's sustainable as well and just enjoy the gifts that it gives you. All right. I'm going to let you go because I got another call I got to jump on. But uh, thank you for taking the time to talk us through it. And I'll give the link to the books and all your stuff. Just send me whatever you have and we'll put those in the show notes and so people can find you. All right. That's super. Thank you very much, Chris. I really enjoyed it. All right. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. So this might be a little weird and off topic, but uh, this is called One More Call. So I had a conversation with one of my mentors. I called him because I was frustrated. The deals that I had been working for the last few months seemed to be going south on me, and I was starting to get down on myself. 
I talked to Bruce, my mentor, because he's been a career-long sales professional, and he is my coach when it comes to job-related topics. You know, you have ups and downs. In most of my roles, I don't have anyone impartial I can talk to. I know what I'm doing most of the time, but sometimes I get down or I lose my way. And that's the way it is in startup world. That's the way it is in sales. The difference in startup world is that these deals can actually be life or death turning points for the company. And I feel personally responsible. People are counting on me and I'm letting them down. And that's the startup world. It's either all positive or all negative, and it swings between those two poles depending on the day, depending on the business. It's all Jerry Maguire moments where you're either dancing or crying in your beer. And it's not a numbers game like in big companies. It's a face-to-face fist fight, or depending on your point of view, maybe a slow dance. Every move, every call, everything you do counts. And there are three main things that make for a successful business interaction for a sales professional, in my opinion. And the first of those things is detachment. As the immortal Herb Cohen said, you have to care, just not that much. You have to be emotionally connected enough to give 100% and to bring the passion. But you have to do the emotional jujitsu of not being emotionally connected to the result. Which sounds great, but it's almost impossible to pull off. Attached to the process, detached from the result. Otherwise, you'll get desperate when things aren't going well. You'll lose your ability to walk away. You'll take it personally. And when you become attached to the business... It'll show up in how you act. You'll give tells, like in poker. The prospect will smell it. They will smell your fear. Two million years of evolution means that they won't even know why they don't want to trust you today or do business with you. They just won't because they smell your fear. They smell your desperation, like a dog can smell when a human is afraid. Detachment is how you put aside the fear of losing, because if you allow the fear of losing in, it will overpower the skill of winning. You'll start playing to not lose, and that's the kiss of death, especially in a startup. You can get away with that a little bit in a big company, where not losing is a positive outcome, but in a startup, you have to play to win. And you need to stay detached as you play to win. Detachment is the rule. You need to always maintain that ability to walk away. That's your ultimate leverage. Not only will it help you win business and maintain margins, it'll keep you sane. And I said there were three things. The second thing is to have an attitude of abundance. And in business, you cannot be a negative person. In life, you can't be a negative person. No one likes a negative person. The baseline of abundance is a positive approach. More than that, you have to operate as if the world is abundant. You have to believe that. 
You have to operate as if you have so much opportunity that you can walk away. Abundance supports your detachment in a positive way. And this is the attitude that you carry with you into your interactions. This translates to you truly believing that you are shepherding the prospect to a better world where 1 plus 1 equals 3. You have to believe and practice abundance in such a way that it becomes infectious. And your abundant attitude will create positive momentum towards a better future. That belief in abundance of opportunity and time is very important in a startup. And it's, in, it's essential in a sales role. Reality is smacking you in the face every day. You typically don't have the resources, the infrastructure, or the history of success that a large company can draw on. You're creating a reality. And that reality has to be abundant, and you need to carry it with you. Abundance, like detachment, is easy to talk about, but hard to practice. As you struggle to find the next lead or to get people to return your calls, as you are ignored and told no for the hundredth time, this is how deep your well of abundance needs to be. And in a startup, you need to be almost Pollyanna. Your attitude of abundance needs to be irrational until it isn't. And the third point of the three things, the third thing you need is intent. You need to have the correct intent going into every action and every interaction. Your intent cannot be to close the deal and make money. Your intent cannot be to get something from someone. Your intent has to be to solve a problem and help someone. If you carry an avaricious intent into your meetings and your calls, you will smell like a greedy, self-centered asshole. Like fear, people are wired to smell greed. You can't look at your business prospects and see tuitions and car payments. That's like the old cartoons where the starving person sees everything and everyone is food. That's why, as a rule, we don't like interacting with salespeople because we know they're after something. They see us as food. And we smell it. You have to flip that script by bringing an honest intent to your clients. Ask yourself, how is this going to help them? Because if it isn't, you have no business approaching them. Pun intended. As a startup, you tend to pretend you are farther along than you are. And I would counter that. This is part of a dishonest intent. You don't have the infrastructure, the history, the clients. It's a fact. Use it to your advantage. Use that as part of an honest approach. It will help you qualify your market and your opportunities. If you start with this base of good intent, everything gets more honest and enjoyable in your interactions across the board. It takes energy to pretend you're something you're not. Don't do it. Leverage what you have and bring that as part of an honest intent. And share that intent right up front in your interactions. Here is how I think I can help you. I'm not sure if I can. Maybe I can't. Maybe we're too small for you to do business with. But I'm committed to working with you to figure it out. If it turns out differently, we'll shake hands 
and be on our ways to the next opportunity. And that's a recipe for an effective business interaction. Bring valid and honest intent. Bring an attitude of abundance. And always, always be detached from the outcome. And I'm not saying this is easy, because it's not. It's a higher-wire act muddied by the inclusion of humans with all their emotional baggage. And just because you're bringing good intent, abundance, and detachment to the table doesn't mean the people you're engaging with are doing the same. Just the opposite. For many people, these types of business transactions are foreign to them. And it's not what they do every day. So your potential partner may bring fear, scarcity, and deceit to the engagement. And this sentiment is summarized in the old saying that the the old sales guys have. They say, buyers are liars. And to give them a benefit of the doubt, they probably don't intend to be liars. They just aren't good at this type of business transaction. They may not even know they're lying. This is why we, as professionals, not only need to manage our emotional approach, but also that of the client. We need to lead. In business, people don't want servants. They want leaders. They want someone to tell them what they are doing wrong and lead them to something better. Prospects want strong leaders. They won't say it. They may not even know it, but they want to be led. Now you're seeing why selling is probably not as easy as you think. Not only do you have to practice and manage your own approach, but you have to manage the client's approach as well. And on top of that, you need to deliver results. There's no hiding. It's not about activity. You can do all the right things and still end up failing. It's a role where you're going to fail nine times out of ten. And that's why those top three things we talked about there, detachment, intent, abundance, that's why those are so important because otherwise it'll eat you up. So enough of the theory. I could write a book, and maybe I will, but that book probably has been written a thousand times by other people already. So let's return to the point. I called my friend and mentor, Bruce, just to talk through it with someone I could trust. One more side, Allie. You should have these kind of people in your life that you can talk to and trust. Everyone needs to talk it out now and then. So Bruce was an old-time sales guy. He used to ride around and knock on doors in his day. And he told me one of his first sales managers gave him some simple advice. Make one more call. At the end of the day, when it's quitting time and you're tired and you don't think you can go on, make one more call. And he tells the story of when he used to sell books, law books. And yeah, there was such a thing at a time. He was driving around, driving home one night from a long and unsuccessful day of selling, and he saw a light on in a building. And even though he was exhausted and he felt like quitting, he went up to that office and he knocked on the door. And the guy said, what the hell are you doing here? To which Bruce replied, what the hell are you doing here? And Bruce ended up getting a new client (laughs) by making that one more call. And that's the message for you here. You are going to have days that knock you down and kick the shit out of you. And it will seem like everything's going wrong and you will feel defeated. And it is at this point that you need to wipe the creases out of your suit coat, smile, and pick up the phone and make one more call. 
And think about what you're saying to yourself when you do that. Make that action. When you pick up that phone, you're making a positive action. You're doing something. You're making a difference. You're doing something that is under your control. That one more call can be the most empowering call of the day. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have made it. You have been resilient to the end of episode 4-393 of the Run Run Live podcast. You have run through the night and through the fields and over the beach. I did manage to get down to Cape Cod last week. I got a two and a half hour long run that I had to do and I decided to do it out on the beach. I kind of look forward to that every year. It's one of the things I do. And I wanted to go up to Coast Guard Beach, the national park, which has this long, unbroken, straight line of a beach that runs up the outside of the Cape. But the logistics getting over there and getting to the beach, they proved to be a bit of a hassle. So instead, I went out to the Coast Guard Lighthouse, Lighthouse Beach in Chatham, where I go every year. I've been running there for years, but it has become challenging to get enough distance in. Because the beach has changed. The beach used to run for miles, but now it has been washed away, and you can only get out about a mile before you run out of beach. And it was funny because I ran out of beach, and I was standing there looking across the the opening that goes into the harbor, trying to determine if I should just swim across the 50 feet to get to the other side. And, uh, And a girl pulls up in a boat and offers me a lift to the other side. And I demurred. I said, no, I'll, I'll figure it out. And luckily, it was low tide. And I was able to cross the mud flats and cut through the old port over to the private beaches on the other side. Because in Massachusetts, you have access to any ocean beach, private or public, below the high tide mark. So as long as you stay in the beachy part of the beach, you can trespass. I finally ran out of beach. And I did seriously run on a beach this time, about an hour in. But I was able to cobble together enough turns and crenulations to get about 2 hours and 24 minutes in before I made it back to my truck, so that's close enough. And there were lots of families and people out walking, and it was quite busy. There were old guys in dirty rubber coveralls working in the low tide, in the clam flats with rakes, clamming. And the families, they got ferried out to these places I was uh, in skiffs by, like, hotels or the port people for these sort of excursions. They boat them out there and they they sit down and uh, hang out on the beach. And the clamors had their own flat-bottomed aluminum boats bobbing in the shallows. But the thought in the back of my mind was, if it's low tide now when I'm going out, am I going to be able to get back when I turn around, or is the beach going to go away? And uh, am I going to be able to beat the tide, right? And sure enough, when I got back to the old port, the tide had erased the mudflats. That was it. Nothing there. And I figured, yeah, I was almost back. I could just run through the water because I already knew where the bottom was, and I knew it was a hard bottom and it was shallow. I had unretired a old pair of Brooks Launch, from last year for this weekend to bring down the cape with me and I could easily justify getting those wet and potentially even ruined but I 
found a trail off through the bush that circumnavigated the mudflats and got me back to the other beach without having to take the plunge. It added a little distance, which I needed anyhow. I was quite pleased with how things worked out. So, my friends, you know, you can step into those trails, step into those beaches, and you will step into those adventures. It'll all work out. So, speaking of Cape Cod, I'll leave you with this. I found a home for my Spalding Boys Wagon Tongue baseball bat from the 1800s. Yvonne and I went out to a bar-type place in Harwichport to watch the Patriots game and grab some dinner. And the name of this place was the Hot Stove Cafe. So it's baseball-themed. And I was chatting with the owner, and it occurred to me that I was surrounded by ancient baseball memorabilia. And I told him, you know what? I have something in the back of my truck that you might like. So I went by the next day and I dropped it off. And when I dropped it off the next day, he wasn't around, which was perfect because now he couldn't say he didn't want it. (laughs) So it just goes to show you, everything works out. Patience, mindfulness, practice, and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. Hold on here. Let's make sure the uh, audio equipment is right. We got our audio going. All right. Let's go over here and look at this. What the... What the do 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 view single page single page single page one page yeah there we go hundred mm, percent nope page width yeah that's good all right <clears throat> you ready. Seems I may have uh, I may have lost something in my document here. Hmm. All right, I will. Uh, I'll wing it.